capturing nuance, uh, being ignored, feeling invisible, uh, subtle slights that one might experience. Um, VR is really good at capturing some of that. So we wanted to integrate all of that. So where we landed was to put you in the, the shoes of Michael Sterling, a black male uh, avatar character as a child, adolescent, and adult who's experiencing racism in different forms. Um, and we pulled from a, a broad empirical literature as well as other data points to help inform each of those scenes. So in the first scene, you're in an elementary school classroom, being some taunting going on between kids. You're unfairly disciplined for engaging in the same behavior as other kids. You're the only black kid in the classroom. And that draws on a, in a you know solid empirical literature around disciplinary practices in the classroom and in black boys in particular being disciplined more harshly for the same behaviors and personal experiences that were shared with us when we asked people uh, from our networks to tell us what types of things were happening for you at age six, seven, eight in, in the classroom that we might pull on to inform this experience. Welcome to the Data Binge Podcast, a library of discussions with technologists and business leaders focusing on the human relationship with technology. Three, two, one, deploy. Hello, everyone, and welcome to today's episode. I hope as you are listening to this, you and your loved ones are safe, healthy, and out of harm's way at all capacities. Some quick updates before we get started. In observance of Juneteenth, on June 19th, I posted a special episode commemorating that holiday, episode 43. If you haven't taken a bit of time to listen to that episode, please do. I think it's definitely a good spend of time, especially if you are looking to get closer to things you and your organization can do to better support your black colleagues, friends, and communities. To give extra special attention to that day, we rearranged some live broadcast scheduling. On Wednesday, July 1st, from 9 to 10 a.m. PST, Ian Connell will be joining the live production of the Data Binge podcast. Ian is a good friend of mine and an investment principal at Charter School Growth Fund, a nonprofit that uses similar approaches to the venture capital funding model to fund the expansion of charter schools. Ian manages an innovation fund and will be talking about the future of education, innovative tech in K through 12 learning in low-income student populations, and innovative capital models that could very well change the very way tech is brought into education in the foreseeable future. To engage the conversation in real time as we broadcast live, you can follow me on LinkedIn or subscribe to my YouTube channel via the links provided in the show notes of this episode. Now, are you ready for today's discussion? Today's episode is an interview taken from Simply Tech Live, a live program co-hosted by Ali Mazahari and I, focusing on the evolving landscape of tech. The discussion features Courtney D. Cogburn and Jeremy Balenson. Courtney is an associate professor of social work at Columbia University. She is on the faculty of the Columbia Population Research Center and a faculty affiliate of the Center on African American Politics and Society and the Data Institute. Courtney's work focuses on the ways that society characterizes and measures racism, the effects of cultural racism in media, as well as the effects of racism on cultural inequalities in health. Jeremy Balenson is a Thomas More Stork professor in the Department of Communication at Stanford University 
and is also the founding director of Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. Jeremy studies the psychology of virtual and augmented reality, specifically how virtual experiences lead to changes in perceptions of self and others. His work predominantly focuses on important social and behavioral issues, including climate change, homelessness, and now racism. Courtney and Jeremy joined the broadcast to talk about their collaboration on 1000 Cut Journey, an immersive virtual reality experience that allows participants of the experience to become Michael Sterling, a fictional black male character as he encounters racism as a young child, an adolescent, and a young adult. The world premiere of the experience was featured at the Tribeca Film Festival Virtual Arcade in 2018, as well as at the New Orleans Film Festival Cinema Reset in 2018. If you'd like to better understand the context of this discussion before you listen, which I think could be very helpful, I have provided links to the trailer of the experience, as well as a TED Talk given by Courtney around virtual reality and the complexities of racism and why it's so important to understand, motivate, and act on racism and racial injustices. Throughout the discussion, we talk about how VR can be used as a lever on very difficult problems that other media simply can't be used to help with by merging technology and very carefully constructed narratives based on empirical data. We talk about the transdisciplinary approach to merging different studies of research and thought and how you can create novel ideas, perspectives, and experiences through that approach. We also talk a lot about the specific power of VR, the true nature of VR as an experience that you can actually walk away with, and the implications of these experiences to understanding, visualizing, and creating new perspective that can be used to change everything from policing to policy. You can find links to all the items discussed, including all of the work around the Thousand Cut journey and the actual live stream broadcast of this interview in the show notes of this episode. We really hope this is an impactful discussion for you. It certainly was for me. There's a lot to take in here. And most importantly, thank you for listening and being a part of this special and very important discussion. Now I bring you Courtney D. Cogburn and Jeremy Balinson. Simply Tech Live is a collection of discussions with technologists, practitioners, and today academics on the evolving landscape of tech. And today, we're specifically going to focus on the human component of how technology is really helping the world today. And we have some very, very special guests. My name is Derek Russell. I am a data and AI solution specialist here in the West region of Microsoft. I'll go ahead and kick it to my co-host, Ali Mazahari. Ali, why don't you introduce yourself and kick it off to our wonderful guests today. Sure, uh, Ali Mazahari, super glad to be here. And I'm personally very excited for this broadcast in this session. Uh, we've been planning to do this for a while, but uh, I'm honored to have two special guests, Courtney and Jeremy. Uh, I'll let Courtney to start doing a quick intro and then we're gonna pass it over to Jeremy before we start a conversation. Hi, everyone. I'm Courtney Cogburn, an associate professor uh, at the Columbia University School of Social Work and Population Research Center. I am the lead creator, along with Jeremy, of A Thousand Cut Journey, which we're talking about today. Jeremy? My name is Jeremy Balenson. I'm a professor at Stanford University, where I direct Stanford's Virtual Human Interaction Lab. 
we build virtual reality simulations and then we run psychology experiments to see how VR affects your mind and study which applications work. And we've been studying VR for 20 years and super excited to talk here today with Courtney about uh, this project. Absolutely. So I'm going to be in the background doing the, the moderation for, you know, I'm sure we're going to have a lot of questions. Uh, why don't you, Derek, start the, the convo with the, the, the power duo here? Great. We've been looking forward to this conversation for a really long time. And just so folks can, and we, we've shared a couple links within the event space uh, of Jeremy, uh, one of your talks focusing on VR and human experiences. And we also posted a link to your TED talk, Courtney. But can both of you highlight your work, what it is we're talking about today, and essentially how this came together? That's a lot. <laughs> we have an hour. <laughs> yeah, I'll, I'll, I'll be brief. So I, I mainly focus on how we characterize and measure racism. Um, so I, I do some conceptual work around what racism is and means in modern society. Um, and I think about the effects of racism on health, how systems and structures and cultures in particular have implications for the racial inequities that we observe in health. Uh, I've recently moved into the emerging tech space, particularly the work around VR, to think about how people engage the realities of racism, um, really understanding the complex web of things that come together to produce racial inequity um, as a broader focus of my work and have uh, come to VR as an important tool to help me do that. And my work as it relates to this project, for quite some time we've studied how you can use VR to teach about empathy. Uh, and in particular, we leverage a few things about VR where you can literally transfer into another's body from a neuroscience standpoint. You can uh, walk up to a virtual mirror, you can move your arms and see your hands and body change. You become a different age, a different race, a different body shape, a different gender. And what you can then have is a transformative experience while wearing the body of another. And so a lot of the work that we've done in the past leverages this ability of virtual reality to allow you to walk a mile in someone else's shoes. Jeremy, a lot of the things that you focus on uh, in your lab space at Stanford, you've been doing this for a really, really long time. Um, longer than I thought VR was even around. Uh, can you talk to just the evolution of your work from 20 years ago until today? Yeah, uh, the first VR system that we had at UC Santa Barbara when I did my postdoc in the late 90s, you know, we thought of it more like a, a, an MRI machine, a magnetic resonance imaging. It's huge, took up a whole room, cost six to seven figures, you know, require dedicated engineers to run it. And now we're at the point where, you know, Microsoft makes headsets that, you know, cost a couple hundred bucks, uh, the, the, the Windows machine, and uh, it's totally self-contained. And there are tens of millions of them and, uh, across the world, uh, a lot of them being used today. So we're at a really neat moment where a lot of the principles we've studied for the past few decades, now uh, we can build specific applications with the notion that they're not going to be this archaic machine that lives uh, in a big basement of a university, but people can actually use in their daily lives. We've been discussing this idea of transdisciplinarian crossover study. And Courtney, I think you, when we initially talked in preparation for this discussion, 
you mentioned how your work and Jeremy's work kind of fuse together. And there's just so much there. There's a lot of learning processing there. Can you talk a little bit about your work? And I would love to begin to fuse how you guys have both collaborated. I know this is your first time you guys have interviewed together about this project. So Courtney, can you highlight like what you've been doing at Columbia and, and outside of Columbia as well? Yes, I think, you know, I use the language of being transdisciplinary to, to, to have an excuse to deal with my academic commitment issues, my disciplinary commitment issues, right? I, I like and enjoy the, the theory and methods and, and concepts that are, that are used across multiple disciplines. And taking a transdisciplinary approach allows me to take a little from everywhere to create new things. And that's definitely the approach that um, Jeremy and I took, you know, I think, and I've said this in other interviews, but, but not with Jeremy on with me is that, you know, I, and he knew this, I'd never used virtual reality at the time that I reached out to him to work on this project, but had done a little bit of digging about what VR was being used for, uh, being able to walk in somewhere else's shoes seemed like a, a very powerful concept to me to meet some of the goals, the big ideas that I had in my mind around if people can only experience this firsthand, maybe they understand it a little bit better. Um, so when I reached out to Jeremy, uh, he was very responsive. His team was responsive. And we had an initial conversation and felt like we had some synergy that that could work. Um, and, and Jeremy can speak to why he was ended up being interested, because I know you get lots of requests to, to collaborate, Jeremy, and you can't do everything. But from my perspective, it felt like a good partnership. Um, because Jeremy was not just interested in the technology, he was interested in social and behavioral applications of the tech and he was already exploring a number of complex social psychological issues, um, in, in including having done some work around race, but never to, to this extent. So for me, um, as, at the outset, but certainly in retrospect, that was an important piece of deciding to partner with Jeremy. I didn't have to convince him that racism was an important thing for us to tackle and think about it. Even though he hadn't done a lot of work in that space, he understood the significance of doing a project like this. And I didn't have to do any convincing around that part. Um, so that was, that was critical. And both Jeremy and I know that neither of us could have created this work without the other team, right? That you needed this particular collection of ideas and synergy and shared ideology and expertise and blending that together to create the thing that we created. It's not a Courtney project. It's not a Jeremy project. It really came from our, our teams working together. But, but Jeremy, what's your, what's your point of view on? For me, knowing how unique a tool VR is to solve, not solve, not even close to solve, to chip away and to, you know, to, to help on a lot of difficult problems. We've worked on climate change. We've worked on uh, issues of conflict. We've worked on, you know, personal habits such as exercise and healthy eatings. And I've always thought of VR as a lever that you can use to kind of, you know, help on problems that other media just aren't, you know, intense enough for and don't give you the experiential aspect. You know, race was something that, you know, I was, I was always hoping to be able to build something amazing that could possibly help in this instance, but there is no way I could do it without someone who truly has expertise on the topic. And when Courtney, you know, I'd never really engaged in the content before. We had a student once that uh, she wanted to run a study, a graduate student, and we did. When Courtney called me or she sent me an email that day, I said, well, this is what I've been waiting for to be able to work with a, an expert who really gets all of the aspects around race, who's got really good intuitions on the narrative side uh, as they relate to VR. 
And for me, you know, I've been waiting for that call for a while, and it's just been a pleasure to, you know, to learn from Courtney's expertise and to, you know, to really just to iterate on this uh, a lot. Yeah. Was it difficult? So, Jeremy, I, and I know there's a lot of lines that you're you're starting to I mean, jump across when it comes to racism and it comes to politics and it comes, you know, you're talking about climate change and homeless, all these different, to be empathetic, you're really, it, it, it's gotta be very hard. Did you feel through your relationship with Courtney in this project that she was able to offset the, that uncomfortability or that gap in knowledge or empathy or proximity? And I think Courtney yourself as well, did you feel like Jeremy was able to do that for you from a technology perspective? Well, I, I guess I'll, I'll be brief on this one. Uh, feeling uncomfortable is part of this, and you know, it's that's something that's going to happen, and uh, you know, you need to embrace it. And I, I couldn't ask for a better partner and, and someone who helps me learn every day than Courtney on these things. Yeah, thanks, Jeremy. And, and I, I think it is the nature of transdisciplinary, cross-disciplinary work, right? You're outside of the comfort zone of your discipline and your language and how you talk about things and you may feel incompetent or that you're not coming across clearly because the other person or the people on the team don't speak quite the same language. So there's some inherent discomfort in that. And then you're studying racism, right? You're tackling racism. Um, And so um, I think that's, as Jeremy said, that's just a part of doing this, this kind of work. Um, And I definitely felt like, again, I think it's because of Jeremy's team, focusing on social and behavioral and big social issues, um, they were uh, quite articulate in being able to translate complicated technical um, ideas. They weren't uh, judgmental that my entire team were novices in the technology and respected what we were experts um, in. And so I think we, we both had a mutual respect that was really critical to our relationship. And then having worked across disciplinary lines and what we were already doing separate from each other made it easier to, to work together on this project. Most people would be surprised when they learn that, you know, of the 10,000 hours that went into building this, more than half of them were spent on non-technical things, yeah. which was, you know, a lot of deliberative and wonderful and sometimes intense conversations. But that was the main part of the work. Yeah, it wasn't about the. It's not about the tech, right? It's not about is there something cool we can do in tech? And I think we're, we, you know, certainly I've learned to, to geek out about VR um, since we started this project and Jeremy, you were already solidly there, but um, really it was thinking about what is the social issue that we're trying to address. And, and I even say that to people who end up wanting to come and work in my lab. And I have to make it clear, this is not a VR lab. This is a racism lab, right? You don't come here for the VR. You come here for the social application to this really important issue. And I think we led with that on, on this project. This was not just something cool to do. We were really trying to find a way to have meaningful impact. And so had to spend a lot of time thinking about not just the technical whizzy bang effects, but the, the content and the substance and took responsibility for representing this in a meaningful and authentic way and, and wanting to tread lightly on, on getting this wrong. I think there's a huge parallel there with what you're describing where it's not about the tech. It's not about the coolness factor. It's about that social outcome. And I think the parallel is a lot of tech businesses and especially in this age of digital transformation, we're trying to help our customers or these other businesses, organizations across the world 
get to some kind of business objective, not adopt technology or go to the cloud or use VR or whatever. You're trying to get to this, fulfill this vision. We'll post a YouTube of the trailer of the actual project in, in the feed of this broadcast so folks can check it out so we can just focus on the dialogue here. But Courtney, can you just kind of describe what we're talking about? Like, and if this could be just a journey map of the experiences you wanted to paint with this character and, and who this character is, or it could just be a high level overview of, of why this is a great experience for folks to, to be challenged with. Yeah, I'll try to do a little bit of both and, and be brief. I think, you know, it's, it's challenging to talk about VR. It's the point is to, to do it. Um, but I think there's some really rich elements in what we were able to create. And where we landed was that we wanted to represent something that captured multiple elements of racism, multiple layers of racism, not just a single moment in time, not only things that were in your face and direct, but things that were much more subtle um, and nuanced. And I think we, we sort of landed into a place where a VR is quite powerful in helping us do that, capturing nuance, um, being ignored, feeling invisible, uh, subtle slights that one might experience. Um, VR is really good at capturing some of that. So we wanted to integrate all of that. So where we landed was to put you in the, the shoes of Michael Sterling, a black male uh, avatar character as a child, adolescent, and adult who's experiencing racism in different forms. Um, and we pulled from a, a broad empirical literature as well as other data points to help inform each of those scenes. So in the first scene, you're in an elementary school classroom, being some taunting going on between kids. You're unfairly disciplined for engaging in the same behavior as other kids. You're the only black kid in the classroom. And that draws on a, in a you know solid empirical literature around disciplinary practices in the classroom and in black boys in particular being disciplined more harshly for the same behaviors and personal experiences that were shared with us when we asked people uh, from our networks to tell us what types of things were happening for you at age six, seven, eight in, in the classroom that we might pull on to inform this experience. So um, it also conveys in that, that moment of how early these experiences start as well as how early white children start to use racialized language and have racialized notions in their minds about who's dangerous, who's valuable, who's not. Um, and it starts quite early, which is also empirically grounded. Um, we, we leveraged from, from Jeremy's work and other people's work in VR using mirrors so that you could connect with the body consistently. Um, interactivity was built throughout. And, and Jeremy you know, and his team really pushed us to think about you're not just standing watching something happen. VR is not a passive experience, or at least it shouldn't be. How are you using your body? How are you using... The space and we've had to scrap entire scenes because they just weren't working for VR, even if they were powerful on their own. Um, so we use mirrors to help you transition between ages so you can see yourself age and become slightly older. In the second scene, there's a dynamic with the mother who's worried on your way to a basketball game that you're dressed similarly to uh, someone the police are looking for and ask you to change. You have a white friend who's waiting with you who's a little bit clueless about the significance of this concern. Why is that such a big deal? You later have an encounter on the uh, street with police officers who, you know, inevitably are going to accost you and, and ask you to, or command, they, they're not being polite about it, uh, command you to get down on your knees and put your hands up. And again, that was a physical element that we wanted to build into the piece. A technical note that we, we came to realize very quickly that changing your eye level is technically very 
difficult. Um, sitting down on the floor as a child, kneeling, going from standing is a difficult thing to do. But that was one of those sort of a collaborative things that my team felt that was very important. So how do we sort of work around and find a way to do that? Um, and then in the last scene, you're in a workplace setting where you're being ignored and disregarded, even though on paper you were the candidate they were most excited to see. And the, the person conducting the interview instead goes to a white male candidate asking that, oh, you must be our candidate from Yale. We're so excited to meet you. Uh, when in fact you're that candidate um, and doesn't really turn to acknowledge your presence until uh, pretty late in the exchange. So creating invisibility, being dismissed, that sort of thing. So there's lots of other elements, right, that are built into the experience that, that some of which are just best experienced and not described. And, and um, But that gives you a sense of how early these experiences start, that they happen across the life course in multiple contexts and that it's layers. It's someone yelling at you and telling you to get down on your knees. It's also a mother who's worried about your, your well-being and having to be vigilant in that regard. All of that falls into the box of racism. And we wanted to represent as much of that as possible. It's just fascinating. It's absolutely fascinating that, and going back to your comments about using the, this empirical research and you're drafting up these different experiences based upon, I'm sure, data and, and things that relate to your work, Courtney. But then, Jeremy, how when you learn about these experiences or as you're collaborating, how did you construct, I mean, this thing going back to mirrors, and these these practices out of your work past 20 years. I saw in one of your videos or images of you correcting someone standing. They had a headset on. When you're looking at these different experiences, what is going through your mind and how you're trying to tell this story for this experience? Yeah, so in VR, the key is doing, right? So when you write screenplays, they say show, don't tell, meaning there should be things happening, not just dialogue. And when you do VR, it's do, don't show, meaning it's all about the person moving her or his body, interacting with the scene and actually doing stuff. And, you know, there's nothing more heartbreaking to me as a VR designer when you see someone doing a VR demo and they're standing totally still, not moving their head and not moving around. Because if someone's not going to be moving, then why not just let them have a laptop where they can look straight ahead and, and see all this wonderful resolution. VR is really about doing. And so, you know, where the design principles that have evolved over, over you know, a decade or two before me in VR and the last two decades while I've been there are things that involve activating the motor, motor sensory cortex, uh, having people engage into very visceral reactions, whether it's, you know, you know, flinching as someone forces you to get down to your knees in scene two of Thousand Cut Journey, or this, uh, you know, intense reaction where uh, in the first scene when the teacher uh, is uh, yelling at you and treating you unfairly, that her standing up, towering over you, which activates a flinch response, and yelling is actually triggered by a physical motion. You actually pick up a block, and we wait until you throw the block, and then the teacher uh, is uh, disciplines you. So it's really about embedding in the reactions we know that make VR, you know, have a physiological response similar to the real world, and then embedding that into the narrative. And the only way that happens 
is, you know, after dozens and dozens of iterations, VR design, like any, any good writing, uh, it doesn't just happen. You just have to go and try it and critique it and redo it. And a lot of those we get shortcut because we've been building VR for a while, but a lot of those you just have to try and fail and then repeat. So you're taking this data from, from Courtney and the, and the social work, you're trying to apply it to these experiences, and then essentially you're just creating this, this scope that is where you're trying to get the reactions that mirror your, your end product. So uh, think about VR. VR creates experiences. They create experiences that are rare in the real world, things that don't happen every day. They create things that are dangerous in the real world, like a flight simulator. They create things that you can't do in the real world, like change your skin color. Okay, so from a VR design standpoint, you leverage the fact that it creates a, an experience that the brain treats as if it were real and that you have a physiological response. You literally sweat and your pupils dilate and all the things we can measure, which we've done for two decades. VR creates an experience the body uh, treats as real. So you take the Venn diagram of experiences that we know work in VR and then you combine them with the experiences that Courtney's team came up with from a narrative standpoint that were really getting at the heart of this structural injustice. Uh, and we try to find, and this took a long time, because you don't want to have gratuitous use of VR that has nothing to do with the real issues behind uh, the race. And you don't want to have, you know, stories about race or images about race that can't be done well in VR. And so you've got to find that sweet spot, which is it hits on a critical narrative point, but it also leverages the fact, remember for VR, you have to put on goggles, you have to block yourself off from the real world. You, you know, it's not a casual technology. It's something that you use for, you know, things that are fairly intense. And we had to build around that perfect, uh, you know, area where you get the narrative and the VR. Since we're on this track of the actual equipment and, and your study of, of what this entire process is, was there anything specific to this engagement that was very, very different from anything that you had been approached about or had worked on in the past? This was, we'd done a couple of long narrative pieces about climate change, but nothing, nothing this intense. This was the most intense piece that we'd ever produced and it's uh, remained so. Courtney, and you coming to this and you have, I know from your TED talk, you have a son, the black son, so a lot of these topics are very, very uh, close to you and some of the challenges that you're having to go through from a day to day. Were there, and I'm sure there were, were there pieces of this project that were completely surprising to you or got you closer to the problem that you, you, than you'd ever been before? So nothing that got me closer to the problem. I'm, I'm pretty immersed in the realities of this every day as, as a black woman and as a mother of a black son. Um, and, you know, so that was always true, but I think I've navigated that boundary pretty well for most of my career. That was, that's always been the case. I've always studied my life to some degree. And so that's always a balance that I've been trying to strike. Um, and I honestly think, so people have asked me why uh, I chose or we chose to focus on a black male. And I think focusing on a woman and potentially having that woman be a mother would have been a much more difficult boundary for me to maintain 
the professional academic pursuit of an idea versus something that's much more deep and and personal. Um, so this is still very personal, but it would it would have been a, an additional challenge for me to grapple with uh, a black mother in in a VR piece. Um, but I think one of the things that um, has been striking to me, and this is interesting from a VR design perspective broadly, but also specifically about one related to racism, is the elements of the piece that are designed, meaning they show up consistently and have an effect on people in a consistent way that we didn't intentionally build into the experience. There are certain things that we deliberately designed and chose to do. Some of that was you know, uh, creative choice. Some of it was technical limitation that led us to a creative solution. There are other elements that, that, that didn't quite work that way. So one is uh, a somewhat consistent response of white people saying that their whiteness becomes more salient to them by becoming a black male. Um, and for me and Jeremy, I don't know if we've really talked about this, but to me, there seems to be something different around embodiment going on with this particular piece where they don't feel like they're becoming this person. They still feel like themselves and they're seeing something through someone else's eyes. And, and for some people that's happening um, in concurrence. And so that that's really different than, than embodiment, um, at least as far as I understand it. So that was a surprising element. And then the second element, and I just talked about both of these points in an interview yesterday, is the effect for Black people going through this experience. I didn't really know what to expect for, and we knew this from the beginning, what does it mean for a Black person to become a Black person in VR experiencing racism? Um, We didn't conceptually really know how to wrap our heads around that. Um, And just a quick story, when we were at the Tribeca Film Festival, two Black women walked by where we premiered the work in 2018, and two Black women walked by, and they said, oh, is this the racism one? I was like, yeah, it's the, it's the racism one. Do you want to try it? And they were like, do I get promoted in it? And I was like, no, that's not what this is. And so they, they you know, they, they kept it moving. They said they weren't interested. But so what does it mean for Black people to put on this headset and go through this? And one of the first experiences was a Black male who took it off during the police scene or lifted his headset um, about to stop the, the experience when he got to the police scene. And he ended up putting it back on and finishing um, but he later said that he couldn't hear the instructions the officers were giving him and he was afraid of what would happen. So I just, my heart sank and I just thought, oh, we can't put black people through through this. We can't put this headset on them. We later did a study with black people and found um, in our initial assessment of that data that the response is much more diverse than just triggering, um, bringing up memories that, that specifically have happened. But people have also said they appreciate having the burden of sharing their own painful stories and trauma for the sake of educating others and, and have that burden placed on the VR. Um, others have called it validating that they aren't making this up, um, that they are seeing how these things have added up over the course of their lives. So those are both things that, that were surprising to me, not deliberately designed into the experience, um, but uh, have been interesting and, and surprising. What you, and you said something and it, you, you, you skipped through it pretty quickly, but just for more understanding, you mentioned one of the surprising things was this idea of white saliency. And I think, I don't know if we discussed this before in the past, right? It was from watching uh, one of yours or Jeremy's videos, but you talked about the difference between seeing someone be abused, actually being an observer and feeling some pain or closeness to that. And then that person being abused, is that, is that what you're talking about here with one of the surprising things or am I completely off? 
No, so so I'm not talking about it. And Jeremy can can talk to this more about you know work around shifting perspective, right? Taking different points of view, occupying different points of view in a piece, and having different experiences as a result. What I'm saying is the presumption in VR is that when you become, you put on the skin, you become this avatar, you are losing some consciousness of yourself and really focus on what it's like to be this person. Um, and Jeremy, jump, jump in here if I'm misunderstanding embodiment. And so um, what I've had several people tell me is that that's not exactly what's happening. They're, they're certainly experiencing things from this avatar's point, point of view, but they're also very aware of their whiteness and who they are. And it seems to be something about uh, perhaps the contrast of what's happening to this black avatar being so different than what's happened to them in their lives that there's some kind of simultaneous response um, happening. Um, it's, it's difficult to get any clearer than that. It's, it's pretty complicated what I'm trying to uh, describe. Jeremy, when you think about embodiment in general and, and becoming someone else, is it really the belief that you forget who you are and become this other person or is there some sort of parallel thing happening? So we haven't talked yet, according to you and I, about Fernanda Herrera's dissertation, which she just finished uh, a few weeks ago. And her experimental conditions were you either, it was, it was during Becoming Homeless, which is a VR uh, simulation in which you uh, get kicked out of your apartment, you have forced to live in your car, then you try and live on the bus, someone harasses you, a pretty intense piece learning about the situational factors about uh, losing your home. And Fernanda uh, leveraged um, a 40-year-old theory on empathy uh, by a guy named Batson in which there's two paths towards taking perspective. You can imagine you are going through this yourself, meaning you become, in Thousand Cut Journey, you would become Michael Sterling and you are him, or you can try to imagine what Michael Sterling would be thinking. And it's a very subtle distinction where as you're going through, you're imagining it's happening to you, or you are just trying to feel what he would feel if he were going through it. And for Fernandez's dissertation, she had two conditions, one in which you, you put yourself in it, and one in which you just tried to better feel what the other was doing. And what she saw was better behavioral change when you imagined it was you yourself going through compared to feeling someone else, and showed that this effect was due uh, and she measured this in, in a very clever way, the, the amount of personal distress that you were going through. Um, and mm -hmm. so I, I, there, there is a very important difference between it's happening to me versus, boy, do I now feel more like what's happening to that person? And we're just starting to study that more. Yeah. A little detailed for you there, but it's a, it's a fresh dissertation yeah. and, and excited about her work. But it's an important question. Yeah. What does it mean to become someone else? What does become mean and what... It, what exact dynamic are you capturing in that becoming? There's different ways to become and connect with another life. And so I think that's really fascinating. Yeah. Are there any at all parallels to, and I'd love to bring this into, I'm sure in 2018, there was no thought about what was going on with the current Black Lives Matter movement or the current status of police brutality essentially over the last three months. I know this has been a problem for decades, centuries, but when this was in the, at the genesis of this, and now until this moment now where we, we need this type of empathy more than we've ever needed it before, we need this type of technology more than we've ever needed it before, are you seeing, and this can be for either one of you, 
that description of what Jeremy just described of observing and, and being a part of that process and understanding like who you are and, and maybe you're feeling more white in certain circumstances, but I, a lot of coworkers, a lot of colleagues, a lot of people in the world are very, very aware of their race today. Is that, does that have anything to do and just because of the information out there and, and, and all the communication, does that have anything to do with what you guys are talking about and the experiences that are to be had in this VR type of engagement? I, I think so for, for, for sure. Right. But uh, so, so one piece of this is we couldn't predict this current moment, but I realized one of the first interviews I gave on this, someone asked me how I came up with the name Michael Sterling. And it was just a name that, that came to mind for me. And he asked, was it the combination of the names, Michael Brown and Alton Sterling, um, two black men who were killed by the police. And so I didn't do that consciously, but that's how much it was sort of embedded in my subconscious and shaping how we were approaching that. So that that's very much a part of what was guiding this work. But there is a combination of things, even if it wasn't deliberately designed in terms of people connecting more with being white as a result of becoming a black man. That wasn't a design choice, but that's important. Understanding racism and anti-black racism requires that we also understand whiteness and white supremacy. And I think a a bigger goal of this work is not just empathy, although that's a component of presumably what's what's happening when you're going through an experience like this. And it's not just thinking about yourself. It's thinking about the world and society that we live in and how you're choosing to engage it. And can VR help us to do that? And I think we're beginning to understand what role a thousand cut plays in that. And and Jeremy and I are working on, on new projects that are continuing to push this understanding but it's not just about feeling bad. It's not just about feeling empathetic. And it's so terrible that that's happening to that group out there. For me, it's about grappling with your whiteness and your role as a part of this society and culture and these systems. And what can we do in VR to help you better connect with that as well? Not something that's happening out there to them or those bad white people over there, but really grappling with yourself as a part of the, the same air that, that we're all breathing. What do you what do you think, Jeremy? I mean, you, you, you've been involved with these projects. You've been getting close to them. I mean, this homeless project that you're uh, you're talking about, you're you're seeing this across your team. You're working with your team day to day on these types of projects. What are your thoughts about about this? Well, talking about Thousand Cut Journey specifically, uh, I will say when I began this work, I was more as an experimental psychologist. We, I was more concerned with studying you know, the reaction that one has about implicit attitudes afterwards and kind of the traditional things that 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 psychologists and people that do this in VR had studied before. What's just blown me away by this piece and its utility is just what Courtney was discussing, which is the way in a subsequent conversation it can cause you to have a completely, just a new starting point from the conversation. So this piece you know, it's not a, a thing that, that that changes you automatically. I think it's a powerful, it's an experience. So the way I think about VR is it's an experience the same way you'd have an experience, uh, you know, out in the street. It's not a perfect analog, but it's close. And that experience in a vacuum, it's it needs to be coupled with, you know, a constructive way to think about it and to put it into context. And that's really, again, learning from Courtney and her team, it's been for me a lot more about, okay, this is not a, you're not done with this now. This is an experience. And now you can, now you can begin. 
so we're, I think we're going to bring Ali back into the discussion. So this is a live broadcast and we have, we do have folks that have been engaging and giving us comments while we do that. I'll go ahead and set us up. Can you talk a little bit about these future projects that, that you're working on? If, if, if you're at the liberty to do so. Corey, please. Yeah. So related to, to Jeremy's point that he, that he was just making, part of what we're learning is it's not that we've created a magic pill experience in VR. There are other things that need to happen as a result of that. So I think part of what we're thinking about is how do we use a thousand cut in, in other situations where people can learn and grow beyond the emotional impact that they're having in that moment? How do we help that translate beyond um, or after they take off the headset? But also we're pushing the boundaries, I think, of what we're doing in VR. And, and one piece that I'm really excited about is, is introducing a data visualization component. So is there a way to leverage VR to visualize structural racism? You know, we take the examples of COVID-19 and why Blacks are seeing higher rates of infection and mortality as a result of a virus that presumably should affect anyone in the same way. It's not because there's a biological difference, it's because there's social differences. Can we visualize something like that so people really understand how you get to uh, black people dying at three to nine times the rate of white people from the exact same virus? Um, Policing and police violence and how that intersects with housing and how neighborhoods are constructed and the policy decisions we made around uh, policing and educational systems. That's a complicated network of things that are interacting. Can we leverage VR to visualize that web so that people really start to understand the problem that we're dealing with here? Racism is not something that can be reduced to unconscious bias, although that is an important piece of what's happening here. But if we want people to understand systems and structures and cultures, uh, perhaps visualizing it um, in connection with complex narratives and the way that we've developed with A Thousand Cut um, might be an, an interesting and important way to go, especially if you couple, couple that with educational experiences and meaningful engagement after people take off the headset. Ali, now that you're back in the conversation, and I think we have some some comments, and we're the the dialogue between us three has certainly gotten very deep, and I'm sure folks are very interested. What are we What are we hearing? Some questions that we have. I mean, first of all, I was just like blown away just listening to you guys. Great conversation. We have a couple of questions. Angela, hey Angela, uh, she has a question about uh, whether there's going to be like a, a multiple player type of scenario that you guys are planning so you can have more people engage versus just, you know, one playing as, you know, Mr. Sterling. Is this something that you guys are working on? Well, I will say we are thinking about scale and we're thinking about ways to allow more people to use this across different headsets. But another thing we're trying to do is to really uh, make sure the narrative is, um, absorbed in a context. And so, you know, making a multiplayer game out of it would certainly allow for new experiences, but I think we want to, uh, you know, for now, keep it context. Next question is from uh, Tarane, and I think this is uh, for you, Courtney, or maybe, you know, Jeremy, you can answer as well. The question is regarding the, the frequency of experimenting this via the VR and its impact on building empathy. Uh, apparently, they had a study, uh, and you know, she put this in the comment. Uh, and according to Taranet, uh, in our study, we we're trying to uh, determine how many times participants have to engage in a VR experience in order to build empathy, and for those effects to be sustained over time. So, do you guys have any insight that you can share? 
we we haven't uh, done any run any studies yet where they're having repeated exposures to um, the experience. Certainly, our team has had repeated exposures to the experience, but we haven't examined that um, empirically. I think it's an interesting um, question. And again, I'll, I'll also sort of push against the focus on on empathy. Uh, that is that really the goal? Is empathy the endpoint? What is it that you're trying to do? Because often when I talk about people, talk with people in terms of their interest in use of VR, uh, they end at a place saying, I want people to act differently. That's not empathy necessarily. And so if you're trying to assess the, the function of multiple exposures um, uh, without additional context about this particular you know, set of studies, I, I would say empathy is probably one thing that you would expect to grow and change with multiple exposures, but perhaps other things are shifting as well that are, that are worth thinking about measuring. Another question is regarding when this experience is going to be available. And I know we talked about it and we're going to talk a little bit more about our plans. But uh, there was a question whether there's going to be available as a VR app in the store or, you know, do you guys any plan to make it more publicly available? I think it became clear very quickly that this was not something we wanted to have streaming on on a platform. Um, We felt like it was best coupled with some kind of context for what you just saw and what you just experienced. Um, And we've grappled a lot with how do you onboard and offboard people in a VR experience without having to talk to someone when you come out of the headset. Um, But for now, what we're exploring are ways to partner with, with educational institutions who are interested in using it in conjunction with classrooms that are are tackling related topics. Uh, We're, you know, engaged with corporate partnerships and people, again, who are thinking about using it in a broader context of things and activities that they have going on, um, but are actively looking for ways to expand reach of, of what it is that we've used without, you know, putting it on a public platform like a streaming um, app. And I will say, like, things like museums and uh, other VR spaces that are accessible to the public um, are of interest uh, to us, and, and we just want it to be done in a meaningful, meaningful way. I really have a question that just came up from Amir, and he said that you touched on it on it a bit, but have you considered any design option availability to prevent traumatic experiences for users that are part of marginalized groups? Well, if we go out of the race context, I will say that with soldiers going off to war, Skip Rizzo is doing uh, inoculation where they can have, you know, a traumatic experience and then get trained on how to respond to that experience uh, as a way to reduce subsequent PTSD. I have no idea if that's appropriate for the race context or uh, if that at all works. So, Courtney, what's your point? I think I think we're still my my sense of where we are as a field is that we're still learning a lot about how to avoid harm and how to do the things that we want to do. I think we you know I've learned a lot from Jeremy about this, and we had a lot of conversations about where our lines were in designing this piece. Um, and we were clear, right, that our target audience uh, were white liberals in particular, um, thinking about people who are um, espousing beliefs of racial equity and justice, but uh, may have a ways to go in terms of their behavior and engagement and, and visceral personal connections to what's happening and not just an intellectual engagement. But we couldn't only think about what that group would feel. Um, and even that's a complicated group. We had to think about Black people going through this experience and having an encounter with the police. How violent do we want that scene to get? So there, there's lots of conversations and considerations 
that went into this. I think in addition to being very thoughtful about taking care of the person who's putting on the headset, thinking about what that experience is like for them and not just doing something gratuitous or violent because you can technically achieve it in VR, but really thinking about what you're leaving the person with who's put on that headset. Um, But in addition to that thoughtful process of engaging design, the other is what do you do with people when they come out of the headset? Skip Rizzo is not just putting veterans through traumatic experiences in VR. They're encountering clinicians when they come out of the headset. They're getting clinical guidance and support on how to deal with their emotions and feelings. That's a very meaningful integration of those those two things. So in the headset and out of the headset being um, uh, thoughtful and connected experiences, I think, are critical for taking care of anyone putting on the headset, but certainly the people who are the most um, uh, closely tied to the types of experiences that you're representing. So we talked a little bit initially before we scheduled this broadcast in terms of, you know, how we can collaborate together because as, you know, we talked about it, even at the technology centers, we do a lot of, you know, programs uh, focused on STEM. You know, we deal with like, you know, uh, all kind of t- different ages from uh, middle school to high school, you know, to graduates. And when I personally first heard about this, I was just like, you know, this is something that at least I want my own son to go through it, right? So as a parent, I mean, that's the best way that a child can experiment and see the differences. What do you think is going to uh, happen? And you know, what would be the best approach in terms of you know making this available, uh, not publicly, but in a more controlled fashion, so we really can have the impact that we want to have with the audience. I think I think that's something that we're actively unpacking. So I talked about uh, partnerships with educators, right, who understand the age group that they're working with and what types of conversations make sense in a classroom. Do they feel skilled enough as a facilitator, as an educator to manage really complicated feelings coming up for young people? The answer is yes. Then, you know, let's think about what to do together. Um, We have our sets of expertise and and trust the expertise of others in terms of um, deciding what is best coupled with this. But I think in terms of the relationship with Uh, Microsoft, um, the opportunity for this to be in publicly accessible spaces where we can collaborate together to think about what do you do with someone when they're coming out of the headset and there's not a social worker, a clinician standing there who can help them get in touch with their feelings and emotions as as they come out. It's really exciting for me to, I won't speak for Jamie, but really exciting for me to imagine um, how to best achieve that. And I think it's a model that we might be able to translate into other spaces like a museum, like a library, right? P- places that can be easily accessible and put this in the hands of people, but not just leaving them with the complicated emotions that often happen for people when they go through a piece like this, but really structuring how they're feeling and then really thinking about, again, not just themselves, but what's happening in society and how does what you just saw translate to the moment that we're in right now, for instance. Um, so I think when if I'm excited to think creatively about how to do that, but that's still a work in progress. And I'll add, if we're going to be in a place that's curated by experts in the the social work aspect of this, um, you know, having done a lot of work in places like libraries, advantage of working with Microsoft is that we're going to have some very smart tech people on hand to solve all the VR problems which pop up because VR is amazing, but not yet a perfect technology. So it's a it's a it's a good place to have uh, curation. Absolutely. And, you know, I need to uh, have a call out to Ashley because uh, from Ventana, uh, she's a co-founder of Ventana, another great company that we had an uh, opportunity to work with them. 
that was the reason that I got introduced to this project through LinkedIn. And uh, I'm personally super excited and grateful for the connection that was made with both of you. I know we have a couple of minutes left. Uh, we have a bunch of other questions, but uh, just to be mindful of your time. Uh, Derek, uh, why don't you just go with some last thoughts and hopefully we can get some additional pointers from both before we close. I mean, this was an incredible, I really enjoyed this and it's just very educational getting close to both of your work and um, studying up for this. And I really can't describe what kind of impact I think this is going to have. And I'm just excited to be a very, very, very minuscule part of what this could potentially be both at Microsoft and our experience center here in Irvine uh, in the future and just observing your work and sharing it with others. And, and just based upon what everyone is going through right now, I'd love just to cap off the discussion, just uh, uh, some words of wisdom from both of you for folks that are very challenged with understanding. And, and Courtney, you mentioned empathy and there's other things you're trying to get out of, of this initiative. But what are some things folks can do both black and white? I'd love to, to hear from you, Courtney, um, what you think. Uh, and it could be technology related. It could be something that you learned from this project that you think folks can deploy. And then from you as well, Jeremy. I think, you know, one important starting point, again, thinking about the target audience as I approach this work is starting from a point that your lived experience is not the same as everyone else's. And um, when you're a member of a dominant group, be it physical ability, be it uh, religion or race, you have a tendency to not really be able to imagine what it's like to be someone else. And I think um, letting that be your starting point, whether you're going through a VR experience that's been crafted to help you see another point of view, or whether you read a book, read a book or whether you just open your eyes and pay attention that people are having a different experience from you in ways that might be inconsistent with what you want the world to, to be like. Um, that, I think that shift in point of view is really, really important. And I'll say specifically for tech and emerging technologies and VR specifically, I think the kind of partnership that Jeremy and I have been able to develop has been really special and, 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 and a lot of serendipity involved in terms of how well this has worked. But it's given me a lot of insight into the types of partnerships that I think are important people who have been emerged in the technology for quite some time and have very strong technical skills in terms of NVR, but also people who are novices, but really understand their content and, and communities and social is issues very deeply. Those can be really important uh, partnerships in pushing this technology forward. We can't only have technologists creating content in VR. We need artists and social workers and people from community and youth imagining what we do with this technology. And I think that's when we open access in that way, that's where we'll really start to discover uh, what VR is really capable of and, and ways in which it can be powerful. And, and you know, my, my closing statement will be very brief and it's just listen more. That's what I need to do and that's what I've been trying to do is listen more. This was a very powerful, wonderful session. I know we're right at time, but thank you for doing this with us. Thanks for having us. Thanks for having us. Thank you. All right. Looking forward right. to do more. Thanks. Bye-bye. Take care. Thank you very much. Thanks for watching, everyone. All right, everyone. Thank you so much for listening today and having some fun with us in the podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please follow me on LinkedIn or at 
DRUSS Network, D-R-U-S-S Network on Twitter or Instagram. And you can also reach out to me anytime via email at Derek at thedatabinge.com. The Data Binge podcast is a personal thought form where we share knowledge and ideas. Views and opinions expressed here do not reflect those of my employer, Microsoft. I really hope you enjoyed. Thanks a lot.